Thank you for downloading Peter Smythe's podcast. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Peter and this work at Smythe.tv. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans 1. And while you're turning there, let me read to you a quote from Fleming Rutledge. She writes, In many of our mainline congregations today, sermons are largely based on passages from the Gospels, less frequently from the Old Testament, and rarely from Paul's epistles. Well, that quote is telling, because it's from Paul's epistles that we really understand the Gospel. We understand why Jesus was crucified the way he was, what the significance of that crucifixion was, how he became sin for us, we understand the significance of the resurrection, and we understand us being identified with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, and this is all in Paul's letters. So it's important for us to tackle Paul's letters whenever we can. And so what we're going to do in this sermon is we're going to look at a few of his verses in Romans 1 and pull some things out so we can walk in better revelation or greater revelation. We can walk out our salvation knowing that much more about God's gospel. So let's go to the text. I am reading from verses 1 to 6, and then we'll go back and we'll dig through them. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings about his son, having come from the seed of David according to flesh, having been marked out son of God in power according to a spirit of holiness by a resurrection out of dead ones, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, unto the obedience of faith among all nations on behalf of his name, among whom are also you all, called ones of Jesus Christ. Now that is a mouthful, and I could spend a couple hours just going through verses 1 through 6, but we don't have time for that. So I want to pull out a couple of the major ideas that we see just in these six verses. Let's start with the beginning Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the, look at this, gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings about his son, having come from the seed of David according to flesh. Now, question is, um, this is a letter from Paul to Christians in Rome, and he's never been there before. If you go through the letter, you see that Paul wants, has wanted to visit Rome, but he hasn't met these particular Christians yet. Now, what's interesting here is at the very get-go, he says that he's set apart unto the gospel of God. If you go to Galatians and uh, Philippians, you see that he talks about the gospel of Christ. But here, he does a different kind of nuance, and he calls it the gospel of God. And then he what? He says, which, which he promised, meaning God, God promised beforehand through his prophets and holy writings about his son. 
Now, that's a mouthful, but you see what Paul is getting at here, what he's starting to frame up. And that is God's gospel has its foundation in the Old Testament. He is seeking to ground his exposition of the gospel in what? Israel's scriptures or holy writings. Now, listen to this. Let me read to you a defense of the gospel that Paul made in Acts 26. He says this, All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I have belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. Now listen to verse 6. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now notice what Paul does. Here in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors. To Paul, the gospel is not an innovation. It's not something that was just brand new, that Jesus popped out of the air one day, you know, came down to earth, was born of Mary, had a three and a half year earthly ministry, went to the cross and then saved the world. And what's interesting about that is you think that Paul could have thought that because of his road on to the Damascus experience. You know, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was persecuting the church. And the context of that was that Jews had converted to be Christians and they were declaring that Jesus was the promised Messiah And he was what? He was persecuting them. He was persecuting them for the testimony. And then on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. So you would think, well, he he wouldn't dare as a Pharisee say, you know what? This gospel has has been in Israel's scriptures from the very beginning. You would think that his testimony would be, well, God has done something absolutely brand new that was never thought of before, and it started when Jesus was born. But no, what what Paul shows here is that the roots of the gospel go all the way back in the Old Testament. And notice what he says, how he writes it. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and holy writings, what? About his son having come from the seed of David according to flesh. You know, these days, there's a strain of Christianity that says that God got frustrated with the Jews, they frustrated God's purposes, and so uh, God went on to the Gentiles. But what Paul says here is, no, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel has its roots in Israel's holy writings. Now, uh, listen to this. Listen to Isaiah 40. Remember John the Baptist? You know, 
he appears and he's a voice crying in the wilderness. That's what's testified of him. And that comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, when you go further down in that chapter, listen to these words. This starts out with verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? Verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. And good tidings there means gospel. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the gospel. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. So we see there in Isaiah, we see a kernel of what Paul's talking about, that the holy writings speak about God's Son. Let me turn over to Isaiah 42. Listen to these words. This is Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So God there is speaking about his servant, and his servant turns out to be his son. So what we're seeing here in Paul just starting out his letter to the Romans, this is a church that he's never visited and he didn't found. And there are Jews in the church, and the question that he's starting to frame out is how we Gentile Christians deal with the Jewish question. Remember, John says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, some of the preaching, like I said today, is that the gospel to the Gentiles is plan B, but what Paul's trying to get over into Romans in this letter in Romans is, no, there's no plan B. In fact, the gospel has its roots in Israel's holy writings or holy scriptures. The thing about it is, God fulfilled his promises in a way that nobody expected him to. I mean, think about it for a minute. What kind of religion, what kind of faith puts all of its faith in a crucified Messiah or even a crucified man? There's none on the face of the earth and there's none in existence that says, you know what, this crucified man state-sponsored crucifixion. He was God's son. He was the promised Messiah. There's nothing that comes even close to it. I mean, nobody can make this stuff up, this gospel. The thing is, Israel didn't get it, didn't understand what the Lord was doing in these prophecies. And that's what happened 
to Paul on the road to Damascus. Remember, he was persecuting the church. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was persecuting those who what? Who were testifying that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And then he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he's converted. And what does he do? He goes back and he sees Israel's holy writings anew. He sees the writings in ways that they're all fulfilled in ways that Israel just really never, ever, ever expected. Listen to Isaiah 55. We quote this for all kinds of things, but the Lord put this in Isaiah about his plan for redemption. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's speaking about his plan of redemption. He's speaking about how he's going to fulfill the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that God's glory would come to the ends of the earth. Listen to Isaiah 55.10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return unto me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the, things, in the thing for which I sent it. What's the Lord talking about there? He's talking about the fact that even though Israel attempted to frustrate his plans of redemption, remember Jonah, because Jonah was a type of Israel. God speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to take my word. I want you to go preach to Nineveh. I want you to go preach to these Gentiles. And what does Jonah do? Jonah turns the other way. He books the ship to the other side of the world. Why? He doesn't want to bring the light to the Gentiles. He's a type of Israel. And then you go further in the type, and you see that he's swallowed up by the, by the whale, and then he does preach. Well, that is the gospel going to the Gentiles, and that's how God's fulfilling his word. But you see here what Paul is doing in Romans is that he's speaking to these Roman Christians, and he's saying that he, was, he has been called as an apostle unto the gospel of God. He is setting up the fact that our gospel emanates from Israel's holy scriptures. It's not an innovation. Jesus did not just pop out of the sky because God couldn't get things done 2,000 years ago or prior to 2,000 years ago. No, since Adam's rebellion, God has been working and working and working to get his son into the earth. And a large part of that plan had to do with the Jews. But the Jews rejected her Messiah, or their Messiah. And so uh, what Paul sees here is, even though they rejected 
Jesus as Messiah, God still fulfilled his purposes in bringing salvation to the world. Now let's go on to verse 4. Verse 4 is the climax, really, of this small set of scriptures that we have in Paul. My translation has it, having been marked out Son of God in power according to a spirit of holiness by a resurrection out from dead ones, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice this just overall with Paul. He goes from saying that the gospel of God concerns his son and the son having come from the seed of David according to the flesh, meaning that Jesus came from Israel. He had to be a Jew because that's how God was going to fulfill his purpose, fulfill the gospel. And then what Paul does is he connects this to having been marked out son of God in power according to a spirit of holiness, by a resurrection out from dead ones, Jesus Christ our Lord. He ties the Old Testament to the resurrection. And you see that Paul did that in his defense. Remember when we read the defense and he says, well, I'm just... uh, I am looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to our ancestors. And then at the end of that defense that I read, he says, why does anybody think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Well, Paul follows that same defense here. Now, here's something that's interesting about the translations. Because it messes things up and it messes up Paul's thought. Some translations say that like the NRSV says, and was declared son of God in power. And that really messes up what Paul's thinking is because basically what that is making Paul say is that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the father turned to him and reaffirmed that he was son of God. In fact, you can read through a bunch of commentaries that say that very same thing, that God reaffirmed here. What Paul is saying is that God reaffirmed that Jesus was Son of God or the Son of God after he had been resurrected. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul uses the Greek word oristhentos, which means to separate or to fix or to set, which means that God had marked him out. He's marked out as son of God and power. Well, what do you mean by that, Smythe? That means that in the resurrection, Jesus was made the son of God, made alive again. Now, let me, let me draw that out. Let me explain to you what Paul's talking about. Remember at the crucifixion, Jesus was crucified on a cross And he dies separated from God. Remember in Mark, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the echoes of that in Psalm 22. That is separation. And in fact, in Galatians, Paul says that on the cross, Jesus was made a curse. And that goes back to what? That goes back to Israel's holy writings. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. 
If someone is convicted, basically, of a crime worthy of death, and then he's hung on a tree, he is cursed of God. And that's what Paul is referring to. Jesus died with our sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And Christ died that way. Well, what Paul's referring to here in the resurrection is that Jesus is made alive again. He set out Son of God again. And we see that one in Colossians 2.13. Listen to this. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. God made you alive together with him. Now, we usually concentrate on the believer side of that verse, that we've been made alive together with Jesus. But think of this verse on the Christ side that he had to be made alive again in spirit. And that's what Paul is referring to here. In fact, Peter puts it out just succinctly. He says in verse Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Now listen to this. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. See, when Jesus was resurrected, and that's what Paul's referring to here, a resurrection out of dead ones, he was made alive in the Spirit. And the writer of Hebrews writes this too. He reflects this in his own writings too. Listen to him. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. That's what's so cool about it. In Hebrews 1.5, he writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that throws New Testament scholars all into fits because there's no doubt that the writer of Hebrews is referring to the resurrection. No doubt at all. But you see what he does. He quotes Psalm 2.7 as, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's why Jesus' resurrection is so eventful. That's why he was exalted and given the name above every name. Because he died cursed of God, but then he was, a re- he was resurrected. He was made alive in spirit, and we as believers were made alive together with him. Hallelujah. Now listen to the writer of Hebrews. He goes on. He said, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he, fr- when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what we see here, even in just this snippet of Paul, that Paul is referring to Jesus being made alive again in his resurrection. 
In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts in verse 9, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. God calls him God, which reflects Paul saying, Marked out, Son of God. Hallelujah. And that's why Jesus was given the name above every name. You see, Romans 4.25, you can turn to it whenever you have time. Jesus, Jesus, it says, was handed over to death for our trespasses and then raised for our justification. Raised for our being made righteous. Raised for our rectification. Being made righteous is being made alive in spirit again. And so when he died the death he did, he couldn't be raised until all of us could be born again. That's what Romans 4.25 says. So what Paul's setting out here is, one, that our gospel isn't a brand new thing that just occurred when Jesus appeared on the scene. No, God has been working on the gospel ever since Adam's rebellion. And our gospel is reflected in Israel's holy writings in the Old Testament. It's just that nobody understood what God was doing at the time. Therefore, God says, behold, my, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And that's why the Jews, in a way, in one way, were taken surprised that their Messiah was the man they crucified on the cross. Then we have here in verse 4 that, that Paul ties in those, those holy writings to the resurrection of Jesus as Son of God in power. And you see, according to a spirit of holiness, that's him being made alive again. All right, now let's go down to verse 5 and we can head to our conclusion. Let's read. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of faith among all nations on behalf of his name, among whom also are y'all, called ones of Jesus Christ. Now, the point I want to make here, you see that Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of faith among all nations. What he's saying there is that the grace that he has been given is an apostleship to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we saw that on the road to Damascus. Jesus said, I want you to take my gospel, to, to preach my name to the Gentiles. I want you to go to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, one thing I want to point out is that word grace. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. You can read that or translate it as, through whom we have received this grace of apostleship. Now listen to what he says about this grace. This is from 1 Corinthians 15.8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me speaking about his, um, on the road to Damascus. 
He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Focus in, listen to this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. Now, that's a real interesting thing for a man to say. Paul, in effect, is saying, I've been given a particular grace when it comes to the gospel of God, this grace of apostleship to take his gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I've worked harder than any of them. Well, that brings a question to all of us. You see, God's grace wasn't extended only to Paul or only to Peter or only to James. His grace, the grace that Paul's talking about, has been extended to each one of us, a particular grace to each one of us. In Ephesians 4, 7, he says, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the question that we have that comes before us by Paul just stating this in Romans 1 is what grace have we been given individually? What grace have you been given? With Paul, it was apostleship to the Gentiles. With Peter, and you see it in in the book of Acts, you see that Peter uh, was called to the Jews. But according to Ephesians 4, 7, each of us has a particular grace. And the question that that comes to us by the Lord is, has the Lord given this grace to us in vain? What have we done about this gospel? It's one thing to learn about it from Paul's letters, like we did during the sermon here. It's one thing to understand more completely the knowledge of the Son of God, how God got His gospel into the earth, how He saved all of us. And that's a prayer that Paul prays all throughout his letters, that we grow and increase in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His Son. But you see, grace has to do with getting the gospel out, of finding a place in the body of Christ. And you see here that Paul... By what he says in 1 Corinthians, that he looks at the grace that God has given him and he can testify that his grace toward me has not been in vain. Question is, do we have the same testimony? Can we say the same thing? Because on the last day, we're all going to have to give an account. And on that day, the Lord's going to say, well, I gave you this grace. Did I give it to you in vain? And the big question before us is whether we say, well, yes, you, you did, and no, you didn't give it in vain. 
But I think a lot of us are going to have to say, we're not going to have the same testimony as Paul and say, no, I'm sorry, Lord, you did give it in vain. I didn't do anything with this grace. I'm sorry. So that's something to take away from this sermon. That's something to take away, not just to think about for this week, but actually also for your life. You know, because the, the contemporary question in Christianity is, what is God's purpose for me? Kind of like God is a job filler for you. Where with Paul it was that it was turned around. It was, what can I do for you, Lord? In fact, on the road to Damascus, in one of his defenses of the gospel, he asked the Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And that's the question that is before us. We can take a few verses from Paul and we can increase in his knowledge and that makes our faith stronger and that grows us up in the Lord. But then comes that other question about grace. Yes, I've been given a grace, but the second question, the secondary question is, hasn't been given to me in vain? And we all hope that the answer is going to be no. So let's conclude with the benediction. Let's bow our heads and pray. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in every good so that you may do his will. Him working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We are 100% listener supported. You may lend your support at smythe.tv.